Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a little theater. Okay, no, not that kind of theater. Political theater and performance. But more in the Hunger Games varietal, where the consequences are real and scary. Now, historically, since the early 20th century, when borrowing replaced the federal government having to issue bonds every time it wanted to spend more money than we take in in taxes, raising the debt limit has been a routine congressional function. But since President Obama took office in 2009, Republicans have performed a version of fiscal irresponsibility that is unprecedented. They have flirted with, threatened, and brought America to the brink of defaulting on our national debt, repeatedly, approximately every two years since 2011. And in 2013, our government actually shut down for a whole month because President Obama refused to play Charlie Brown to Mitch McConnell's Lucy with the Football Act. Now, why do Republicans do this? I mean, they represent lots and lots of billionaires. And many of the lawmakers themselves, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his wife, are really, really rich. Defaulting would hurt them, too. So what's the point? Well, it's so Republicans can perform a fake kind of fiscal probity by demanding cuts to government services and spending in exchange for raising the debt limit and paying the nation's bills. Of course, That theater miraculously disappears the moment a Republican is president. And Mitch has the gavel, which is why during the Trump years, it was spend, spend, spend away. Because none of it is real. Republicans do not care about the debt. They never have. What they do care about is not letting Democratic administrations succeed, even if that means wrecking the economy to ruin their administrations. And they care about not letting Democrats spend money on Ordinary people like you. They only want money to be spent on things like giant subsidies for wealthy corporations like oil companies and tax cuts for the super rich. All the rest is theater. Hunger Games theater. Which brings us to today, when Senate Republicans have once again dragged the United States and by extension the world to the brink of catastrophe. McConnell, who led Republican debt limit brinksmanship all three previous times that it happened during the Obama-Biden administration, and who for weeks has demanded that Democrats raise the debt limit on their own, refused their request to do just that. Thanks to the self-described legislative Grim Reaper, 50 million seniors could stop receiving their Social Security checks. 30 million families would no longer receive child tax credits that have raised millions out of poverty, and unemployment could shoot up, way up. Don't take my word for it. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on what will happen if Republicans get their way. It is imperative that Congress address the debt limit. If not, our current estimate is that Treasury will likely exhaust its extraordinary measures by October 18th. At that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited resources that would be depleted quickly. America would default for the first time in history. The full faith and credit of the United States would be impaired, 
and our country would likely face a financial crisis and economic re recession as a result. Senate Republicans are gleefully cheering on economic destruction, full stop, and solely to make a purely political point to punish President Joe Biden and Democrats for wanting to pass a once-in-a-lifetime proposal that would reshape the economic future for Americans like you. The work of getting that passed has been left to House progressives, who've been unwavering in their insistence that they will not pass a bipartisan infrastructure package without passing Biden's Build Back Better agenda. They made that clear again today, two days before an expected vote. I think we've been really clear that we want to work as hard as we can to get a deal on reconciliation, to make sure that the entire bill is passed by the Senate as well, so that there's no delays. And then we stand just as committed as ever to voting for the infrastructure bill. We will pass both bills. This is the president's agenda. It's not a wish list. It's the president's agenda, and we're going to fight for it. So here's what they're fighting for. Child care, free pre-K, reduced prescription drug prices, paid family leave, college affordability, and new climate jobs. What is it that these nine House Republicans, Nihilist Republicans, and Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, what are they fighting for? Well, welcome to the 2021 Hunger Games. May the odds be ever in your favor. With me now, Kurt Bardella, advisor for the DCCC, and Adam Gentleson, executive director of Battle Born Collective and former deputy chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Kurt, you used to be one of these guys, you used to be a Republican. I'm sorry, but it has just never been true that they care about debt. During Reagan, they spent like crazy. During Bush one, spent like crazy. They always spent like crazy. They did it again during Trump. Why is it in your view that these people, these Senate Republicans, think it's good politics to crash the economy in order to pretend that they care about the debt? Joy, I think one of the things that I've observed as and making this transition from being a, a Republican to a Democrat is that Republicans oftentimes play the game that they can take everything to the brink of collapse and sometimes even over the line of collapse. And ultimately, no one will hold them accountable for it, that they'll keep getting away with it. And you look year after year after year, we have this fight. We see the hypocrisy. And yet when I read headlines and stories about what's going on in Washington, I instead see headlines that talk about Democrats in disarray, progressives versus moderates, Washington divided. I never see it clearly defined for what it is, which is Republicans bring the nation to the brink of economic collapse and disaster. I never see a full thwarted and, and, and concerted effort to hold Republicans accountable. So the message that they get is in the media's misguided attempt to play both sides, to present both sides of the argument, they'll get away with it and they do it every time. And that's the lesson that they've learned. They've learned that they can keep doing this and they'll get away with it and no one will hold them accountable. I think that's absolutely true. That is a critique. That is a media critique that is absolutely true. Um, and Adam, and because they do get away with it and the media will always present a both sidesism argument and present only progressive insistence on policy as brinksmanship that's bad, right? Because there's always a skew towards centrist. That does sort of put Democrats in the weird position. This time, though, they're doing something different. Bernie Sanders has come out and says, keep fighting them. He's told House, House progressives, nah, continue to refuse to vote for their stuff until you vote, until they vote for our stuff. You've had Greg Sargent saying that senators, that centrists actually are the ones who should go to Joe Manchin and tell him, 
you know, get him to tell them a number, that it isn't on the progressives to do it, that centrists should do it. No one knows what they'll accept as a reconciliation bill for a Thursday infrastructure vote to succeed. In a minim- at a minimum, it will require Manchin and Cinema to step up, House centrists, et cetera. You've got Demo- uh, Democrats in Cinema's own home state threatening to censure her and saying, no, it's on you, lady. You figure this out. Is that the right approach in your view? Yeah, I think that is right. I mean, I think that, that what we're seeing here is uh, a process that is exposing the fundamental emptiness of this supposedly centrist position. Um, you have an interesting dynamic where you have progressives who are the ones holding the line for the agenda, not of President Sanders or President Elizabeth Warren, but of President Joe Biden, who ran on being a moderate. Uh, I, so I think if you told most people at the beginning of 2021 that this is where we would find ourselves by the end of the year with progressives holding the line to pass President Joseph Robinette Biden's agenda, I don't think many people would have expected that that's where we are. But that is where we are. And progressives have a clear demand, which is to pass both bills just as was always the plan. All they're asking for is for moderates to meet them in the middle, in good faith, and explain exactly what they want on reconciliation so they can move forward and pass the reconciliation bill, which they could do very quickly if moderates like Cinema and Manchin would simply come to the table and explain what it is that they want. Uh, but it really is progressives who are operating in good faith here and who are backing up President Biden and the agenda that he needs to succeed, that America needs, and that all Democrats need uh, politically uh, in 2022. You know, and Kurt, let's talk about Kristen Cinema for a minute. I mean, she's holding fundraisers with the big donor class that do not want this bill. She's doing everything but scream, I'm on the side of the big donors, I'm against this bill. But she won't come out and say it because that's bad politics for her. In your view, as somebody who now advises Democrats on how to, you know, you've been a Republican, so you know how to fight them. What should Democrats be doing about her? I think it's all about the messaging, Joy, and this is something that, as you've talked about time and again, has been a a weak spot for Democrats over the last decade. It's you have to define what this is about. The idea that this bill, that this policy, that these ideas are progressive or conservative. No, no, no. The majority of Americans want these things. Majority of Americans want lower education, lower prescription drugs. They want new green climate jobs. They want to depend on reliance on, on foreign sources of oil. They want a better world, better health care, better education. This isn't progressive or conservative. This is what people want. This is what the majority of this country wants. So that's how we need to start talking about this. And for people like Kristen Cinema and people in Arizona, we need to message it to them directly in their backyard, in the Arizona Republic, on their local stations in Phoenix and in Tucson. This is the message that has to be about why this is good for you, why this matters. Let's abandon the political, the D.C. labels and talk about it like it re- what it really is, because Everybody in this country nearly wants this job, ex- wants these bills, except for the few vocal in the minority who are trying to impose their extreme radical viewpoint, their extreme radical view of government on the rest of us. And we can't let them get away with it that way. Yeah. I mean, and she was at the White House as, as early recently as today. And this month, she claims that she supports she wants a lower number, but she's not being super specific. And again, she's holding those fundraisers uh, with the Richie Riches who fund her. The other issue, Greg Sargent's other um, advice to Democrats, um, Adam, is just get rid of the debt limit. It's just get, this only existed since the 1930s. This isn't the way that government. It's not in the Constitution that they have to do it this way. Is it time to change the rules? And Democrats, once again, they have the ability to change the rules in the Senate if they had the cojones to do it. Yes. Uh, yes, it's time to get rid of the debt limit. As you laid out in the opener, it serves no productive purpose. It doesn't even serve the purpose that it was designed to serve in the first place. Uh, it is simply a 
ticking time bomb every time all we're doing every time we raise it is resetting that time bomb to go off another year or two down the road um the markets hate it business hates it everybody hates it it is not a useful tool at all so uh if democrats uh, have to do this by themselves and go it alone i think that they should do it once and for all and either raise it to some comically large number like a gajillion dollars uh, so that it's it again or just get rid of it altogether that your way to do it uh and so um i think that there you know people are not you're not going to pay a political cost for that i think you should do it like you said though that will probably require some form of rules change uh mm. which i think that they could do I, in fact i know that they could do if they had 50 votes to do it um but that will require them to get those votes um, or stick in the reconciliation package but either way they're going to have to have unity uh and all 50 votes together to do that can I do a quick WWHD? What would Harry Reid have done about Manchin and Cinema, real quick, uh, Adam? Well, Senator Reid, um, by the time he retired, uh, he didn't have a great relationship with Joe Manchin, and that was in large part because he asked Joe Manchin to do hard things and gave him a hard time. Uh, I think Senator Schumer has uh, uh, taken a very um, accommodationist approach to Senator Manchin, which may end up being the right strategy because it may show Manchin that there is no other route to go. Uh, but at mm -hmm. a certain point leader, you do have to play hardball with the moderates, just like the leaders sometimes like to play hard, hardball with progressives. With the progressives. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. Uh, this for both sides. Uh, that's a both sides argument I can agree with. Thank you, Kurt Bardella, Adam Gentleson. You guys are great. And up next, today's other performance, the Republican fell outrage over the Afghanistan withdrawal, a war that just about everybody wanted to be over, including their favorite president. Also, the Obamas break ground on their new presidential center in Chicago. The president of the Obama Foundation and one of his closest advisors, Valerie Jarrett, joins me. Plus, the quest for justice a century after the Tulsa race massacre. A court hearing begins today over reparations for survivors and the families of the victims. And tonight's absolute worst is just completely rewriting the history of the AIDS epidemic while spreading misinformation about COVID. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We helped build a state, Mr. Chairman, but we could not forge a nation. The fact that the Afghan army that we and our partners trained simply melted away, in many cases without firing a shot, took us all by surprise. In the end, we couldn't provide them with the will to win, at least not all of them. And as a veteran of that war, I am personally reckoning with all of that. 
That was Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin delivering some painful truths about this country's 20-year endeavor in Afghanistan. He was among three officials to testify before the Senate Armed Services Committee today, along with the commander of U.S. Central Command and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. For their part, Republicans spent their time hammering their performative talking points, attempting to blame Joe Biden for the inevitable result of ending a forever war that Republicans' favorite president vowed to end, too. In fact, Senator Tommy Tuberville, who, let's just be clear, is a former college football coach, not a military expert, is already musing about the U.S. sending our military back into Afghanistan. I mean, we gave up the best base in that area, and and. And it's just amazing to me that we're going to have to go back and hopefully we don't lose it to China. What do you, what's your thoughts about it as we ended up here, uh, Secretary Austin? Well, I, I don't think it's preordained that we're going to have to go back, Senator. At one point, Democrat Tammy Duckworth, who actually is a military veteran and war hero, offered some much-needed perspective to Senator Rick Scott, whose expertise, let's just face it, is Medicare fraud, responding to his apparent outrage over the Americans who remained in Afghanistan, some of whom, I should mention, did so by choice. I just can't imagine ever in the history of this country our U.S. military would propose to leave a country without our citizens coming out first. I mean, has we, have we ever done that before? I do want to note that... Um my family and I were in Cambodia until the very end. Uh, I'm an American. I was born in Thailand, but my father worked for the United Nations. And to answer my colleague's question, um, my father chose to stay as long as possible to help the Cambodian people as long as possible. And he left after American troops had left. Mic drop. Today's hearing was also the first time that General Milley responded to the reporting from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa about the steps he took to ward off a potential preemptive strike from China out of fears of Donald Trump's recklessness. Reacting to intelligence showing that the Chinese believed the U.S. was plotting to secretly attack them, Milley spoke to his Chinese counterpart twice in an effort to cool tensions. I know, I am certain that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese. And it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. While Republicans have accused the four-star general of going rogue, it turns out that those calls were not so secret after all. According to his testimony, numerous officials were looped in, and Milley even informed Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about at least one of the calls. Joining me now is John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security and intelligence analyst. Mr. Brennan, always great to talk with you. I want to play another soundbite for you because I think one of the big fears, you know, at the end of Nixon as he was spiraling was that he would launch a nuclear attack. And that was some of the fears inside his administration that we later learned. With Trump, we started to we've started to hear through all these books that have come out that people had similar fears about him doing something erratic and maybe you know, mad in uh, in his last ditch effort to stay in power. I wanted to play for you. This was uh, an exchange that Mark Milley had a question that he where he described um, with Speaker Pelosi the risk of a nuclear launch. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made very or made various personal references 
characterizing the president. I explained to her that the president is the sole nuclear launch authority, and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the president of the United States. Does that, does just the fact that that happened frighten you as much as it does me? Well, I think it was quite evident for quite some time that Donald Trump was quite mercurial and even reckless and was trying to do everything possible to stay in office. And so I think what General Milley did was exactly appropriate. Um, He is, by law, the senior military advisor to the president and to the secretary of defense. And he was trying to ensure that the Chinese did not misunderstand what was going on in the United States. And the fact that he shared it with the chief of staff of the president, as well as the secretary of state, secretary of defense, it was not going rogue by any means. General Milley, who is the exemplar, I think, of professional integrity within the military, was doing his job to keep this country strong and safe. Yeah, I think, you know, it's clear why people in the Trumpist right dislike General Milley. He's well read. He's intelligent. He apologized for doing the Bible walk with Trump. He saw he he saw that that was a bad idea. Um, And they see him as, quote unquote, woke because he has evolved views on race and on racial history. That's why they hate him. So here is one of the people with that backdrop demanding something that's absolutely silly and asking General Milley why he doesn't resign because he had a difference of opinion, perhaps, with the White House. I can only conclude that your advice about staying in Afghanistan was rejected. If all this is true, General Milley, why haven't you resigned? It would be an incredible act of political defiance for a commissioned officer to just resign because my advice is not taken. This country doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept and do or not. That's not our job. Just from a personal standpoint, you know, my, my dad didn't get a choice to resign at Iwo Jima. And those kids that are at Abbey Gate, they don't get a choice to resign. And I'm not going to turn my back on them. In your views, sir, as somebody who has had a very senior uh, uh, position in national security, what kind of country would it be if every time a general uh, says that we should stay in the military theater and uh, the commander in chief didn't do as he said, that general were to resign and call that a resignation in principle? Would that still be civilian control of the United States military, in your view? It would be chaos. And I'm quite surprised that Tom Cotton asked such an absurd question or made such an absurd assertion. There's no way that the U.S. military officers should be thinking about whether they should resign or not if they agree or disagree with the policy of the president of the United States. And I'm so glad that General Milley was able to explain exactly to not just Senator Cotton, but to the American people, the responsibilities of leadership within the military, which is to carry out the authorized and lawful orders of the command in chief. Now, if a commander in chief was going to do something that was reckless or that was unethical or illegal, that's when the military officers stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. But in this case, I think General Milley and others made their views clear about whether or not we should leave Afghanistan. But once President Biden, who had to take all factors into consideration, not just the military ones, but the sentiments of the American people, as well as other factors, once that decision was made, General Milley and others did what U.S. military has done for um, decades and centuries, which is to salute and carry out the order to the best of their ability. Because the person in charge is the president of the United States. Just to be clear, they are he is not and no president is required. Am I correct to take the advice unaltered of generals inside of his 
military, inside of the military of which he is commander in chief. Is that correct? That's why it's called advice. And that's why the president has to take in the advice of his military officials, as well as the senior civilian officials. And then it is up to the president of the United States to make the best decision on behalf of the people of the United States. And I sincerely believe that Joe Biden did exactly what he thought was in the best interest. I might not agree with everything that was done or decided, but I don't have no doubt that Joe Biden was trying to do what he thought was important for the people of the United States. Because we are still a democracy, at least for now. Uh, Former CIA Director John Brennan, thank you, as always. Really appreciate you being here. Up next on The Readout, former President Barack Obama is sounding the alarm on the importance of passing President Biden's agenda. That, as he breaks ground on his presidential center in Chicago, one of his closest advisors, Valerie Jarrett, joins me next. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. I think anybody who pretends that it's a hardship for billionaires to pay a little bit more in taxes so that uh, a single mom gets childcare support or so that we're doing something about climate change uh, for the next generation, that's an argument that uh, is unsustainable. Former President Barack Obama is urging Democrats to not shy away from the argument that the wealthy should pay more in taxes to cover President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. It's legislation that will likely play a major role in determining Joe Biden's legacy. And today, the former president was looking at his own legacy with the groundbreaking of his long-awaited Obama Presidential Center in Chicago. President Obama says his hope is that this center can help the next generation take on the central struggles of our time and battle against a growing culture of cynicism and tribalism. What we've seen is that in the breach, a culture of cynicism and mistrust can grow. You start seeing more division and increasingly bitter conflict. The politics that feeds anger and resentment towards those who aren't like us and starts turning away from democratic principles in favor of tribalism and might makes right. Joining me now is Valerie Jarrett, former White House senior advisor to President Obama and president of the Obama Foundation. And Valerie, it is always great to talk with you. You know, it is interesting to see President Obama back out now. Of course, it's because the, the you know, the, the groundbreaking is taking place on the Obama Center. But do you think that he also views in some ways, President Biden and Biden's agenda as part of his legacy, because it was their partnership and the fights they fought with people like Mitch McConnell that kind of set the table for the fights that we're seeing President Biden fight now. Well, good evening, Joy. So first, I have to say to you, it is a glorious day here in Chicago. I'm in the Obama offices, the foundation offices right now. I was out there on the site earlier today. And yes, I do think that The work that President Biden is doing is a continuation 
of the work that began under President Obama. And that's as it is, as it should be. You run with the baton as fast as you can. You can't get everything done. And then you leave it to the next uh, person to pick it up. And obviously we had a gap in there. And now President Biden is certainly trying to make up for lost time. But the other important part of his legacy that he spoke to today, first of all, he said, everything, nearly everything important in my life started here on the south side of Chicago. So to be able to give back to the city with this incredible 19.3 acre center uh, that's going to be a beacon of hope and a catalyst, really, Joy, I think, for positive change that begins here but will ripple around the world, that's a part of his legacy, too. As he said, he wants to make sure that the next generation is a little bit better prepared for the challenges that lie ahead. And if we can play a role in that education and connecting them, convening them, inspiring them, and empowering them, that that is really a very important part of his legacy, together with Michelle Obama and all of those who've been involved in this extraordinary journey with them. Well, you mentioned Michelle because, you know, that was going to be my next question. You cannot talk about Chicago and the Obamas without talking about Michelle, whose family legacy is so rooted to Chicago. Your dear friend. Let's play a little bite of her today uh, talking about the center. See, to my mind, this city, this neighborhood, it courses through my veins. It defines me at my very core. It it makes me who I am. So I'm not just a daughter from the South Side, but a mother from the South Side, a lawyer, an executive, an author from the South Side. I am a first lady from the South Side of Chicago. I have heard her give that speech uh, very emotionally before in Chicago. She obviously has a great love for the South Side of Chicago. Is 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 Michelle part of the catalyst for this becoming a neighborhood center? For having I'm looking here at the list: an auditorium, classrooms, recording studios, a public plaza, an athletic center, a play area, a branch of the Chicago Public Library, and the push to make sure that it's not a gentrification project that people who live in that neighborhood can still benefit from its presence. Yeah, of course. She grew up on the South Side. They met on the South Side, buried, had their children, raised them until they left Washington. And I, so I think this is very much a partnership. They have worked on it together with the community. And part of what we've been doing over the last several years is ensuring that we had community voices as a part of the planning process, that this isn't a center that turns inward, but turns outward. And having the Chicago Public Library and the athletic fields and having it open to the public with walking trails and sledding hills and the for the winter, because we do have winter here in Chicago, all of that is important to both of them. And I think for her, yes, it's very personal. Both Obamas were introduced today, Joy, by high school students from Chicago. And I think the connection that you saw between them and those young people, and they just left our offices here. They met with some more uh, public high school um, students from around the city uh, privately. And it was such an incredible session because they humanized themselves. And I think these young people see themselves in the Obamas because they're not up on some lofty pedestal. They're right here down on earth. And I think that authenticity is what you heard in both of their remarks today. It was coming home. You know, and giving it, it back is, to the city that gave them so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, 
It is a strange juxtaposition. I don't know if you feel this way, Valerie Jarrett, to see the, the Obamas launching something so positive in an era that is so negative and with so many fights over whether or not we can even pass basic things like child care, things that we expect the government to be able to do, as you said, the fights that have been going back since their administration. Are the Obamas optimistic? Because this era is dark. The post, the Trump and post-Trump era is pretty dark, especially when you look at what Republicans are doing. Yeah, look, there are huge challenges, Joy, and you nailed it when you talked about the darkness of the Republicans, that they won't uh, push through a package that's going to provide these basic necessities for working families. But what gives the Obamas hope, what gives me hope, what I hope gives you hope too, Joy, is these young people who do believe that our better days are ahead and that they want to be a part of it. And all they want are the tools to go out and be these forces for good. Yesterday, uh, the Obamas met with a group of young people that are Obama scholars at the University of Chicago, already out working in the community, being change agents. And all they want are a little bit more of an education for how to do it more impactfully. We have scholars and fellows from around the world in Asia and Africa and Europe today are out there working on issues that they care about, from climate change to criminal justice reform to police reform to uh, income inequality. And we're not going to tell them what to do. We're just going to give them some tools to be impactful, some evidence-based strategies that President Obama learned on the ground here in Chicago. And so that's what keeps us optimistic. Yes, if you spend too much time in Washington, it can eat your soul alive. And so that's why even when we were in Washington, President Obama would always tell me on a bad day, he'd say, you know what, get outside of Washington, get out of the Beltway and meet with some real people who really want to roll up their sleeves and make a difference. And they're out there. And what we want to do is unleash their full potential. Well, now that I'm in Washington, I can say, here, here. That is true. It is. It is. It is rough on the soul. But you are wonderful for the Chicago, soul, Valerie. <laughs> Listen, don't tempt me with a good time. Don't tempt me with a good time. Valerie Jarrett, you're great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here tonight. Okay, up next. Nearly four months after the 100-year anniversary of the horrific race massacre in Tulsa, the few remaining survivors are seeking reparations and finally getting their day in court. The readout continues after this. More than 100 years after one of the worst episodes of terroristic violence in American history, the few remaining survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre got a chance to make a case for justice and reparations today. A Tulsa district court judge heard arguments in a lawsuit on behalf of the three living survivors of the massacre. The two days of horrific violence when white mobs bombed, looted and burned the prosperous Greenwood District neighborhood known as Black Wall Street to the ground. The massacre was among the worst in U.S. history, and a search for mass graves of victims continues to this day. As many as 300 people were slaughtered and another 800 were wounded. The lawsuit alleges that the city of Tulsa and six other entities created a public nuisance under Oklahoma law and that Tulsa's north side and its residents are still suffering the ramifications more than a century later. In advance of the anniversary of this atrocity in May, the three living survivors testified at a congressional hearing about what they endured. We lost everything that day. Our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America. I was so scared. 
I didn't think we, we could we could make it out to alive. I remember people were running everywhere. We live with it every day. And the thought of what Greenwood was was and what it could have been. For more, I'm joined by Tiffany Cross, host of MSNBC's The Cross Connection, and Jelani Cobb, co-editor of the new book, The Matter of Black Lives, writing from The New Yorker. Thank you both for being here. Um, And Tiffany, you went to Tulsa. You did a really fantastic special about uh, those survivors and what they're dealing with to this day. Talk about this case. What are the hopes um, for it actually to be successful? Well, the hope is justice, right? And whatever that looks like. Because honestly, these people will not get justice the way that they were disrespected by state-sanctioned violence that not only stole their lives, but their livelihood. And so what the wonderful attorney, Demario Solomon Simmons, argued in front of uh, this judge, Carolyn Wall, today is that uh, it's a public nuisance. So they're essentially taking the same lawsuit that the the defense has tried these opioid cases for and said the ongoing terrorism of white supremacy that destroyed their land is just like the opioid crisis is depriving them of their lives. Even when I was there, Joy, the North, mostly occupied by black people, North Tulsa, was a food desert. It was ridiculously different from what the Southern part, the more white community, they just got a grocery store this year. And I'll tell you, for a lot of people, because I know a lot of folks out there feel like perhaps, um, you know, why do I have to owe reparations for what my ancestors did? Well, I asked Mayor Bynum, G.T. Bynum, the Republican mayor in that town, who's quite frankly a a Trump supporter, uh, who broke COVID protocols and have a, a, a MAGA rally there. I asked him about this and um, his own family actually enslaved black people and he has the temerity to be against reparations. And so I asked, you benefit to this day from slavery. How can you look at the people of Tulsa and deprive them of this? So we'll see what happens. The, uh, the court adjourned uh, a little over an hour ago. Uh, Attorney Demario Solomon Simmons spoke very highly and thought the judge was very fair. This does not seem like a difficult position for the judge. Yeah. All she's ruling on is if this case can proceed. She's not ruling on if the reparations will be given, if the victims will get what they ask. She's just saying, can this proceed? And if this does proceed, this case can be precedent setting for the reparations argument uh, at large. And I just want to say happy pub day to my brother, Jelani Cobb. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And yes, and I have my copy of this book. It's beautiful, by the way. It's nice. I love a good, heavy book. And it's funny because, you know, Jelani, I opened this book, The Matter of Black Lives. I wanted to find your essays, of course. It opens with James Baldwin. They're amazing people. And Tanahasi Coates, Jamaica Kincaid, Toni Morrison, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, so many people are writing in it. But I happened to, just by the grace of God, turned to this Toni Morrison essay. And I, mm-hmm. I immediately texted my producers. Let me just read a little piece of this incredible essay by Toni Morrison. It's called Mourning for Whiteness, and it seems so relevant. These sacrifices made by supposedly tough white men who are prepared to abandon their humanity out of fear of black men and women suggest the true horror of lost status to retain the conviction of their superiority to others, especially to black people. They're willing to risk contempt and be reviled by the mature, the sophisticated and the strong. If it wasn't so ignorant and pitiful, one could mourn the collapse of dignity in service to an evil cause. And she's talking about people who commit murders, uh, massacres, who hurt and kill black people in the name of superiority. Talk about this book and about reparations as a theme that we're actually talking about in real life. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, it, I'd be remiss to not talk about the fact that you know, Charles Ogletree, you know, the attorney, uh, had been you know, precinct on this years ago, saying that there was cause for reparations in Tulsa uh, and that you know, people have known. And, and the other thing that I've said you know, consistently about this 
is that Tulsa is just one. You know, we could have this conversation in Elaine, Arkansas, about what happened there. You know, we could have this conversation in Chicago about what happened there, in Washington, D.C., about what happened in 1919. We could walk through in East St. Louis, you know, the purge in 1917. Uh, There's an entire array. We literally can teach an entire course on this subject, and we do. Uh, And so that's to give a, a sense of how minuscule the concern, the issue in in Tulsa is about reparations compared to the broad scale of what people could be bringing lawsuits about. Now, on the specific matter of the reparations, the other thing that has to be said is that, look, a lot of money was raised for that centennial anniversary. We were there. Uh, The city was, the coffers were were overflowing uh, with the money that was being raised and donated for this commemoration. Uh, And then when people brought up the subject of what happens to the descendants, the family, the descendants of the families that were displaced and of those who were murdered and those whose livelihoods were stolen and taken from them, uh, all you could hear was crickets. Uh, And (laughs) so the least of this is this lawsuit. You know, this is the, the most minimal response that you could imagine to the scale of the horror that was visited upon people in that time period. Yeah. And, and well, very quickly, Tiffany, does it make a difference that the people who were harmed are all alive? Because whenever the reparations uh, topic comes up, people say, well, those people are all right. dead. But in this case, they're alive. Absolutely. So we heard from at the beginning of this segment, Mother uh, Fletcher, yes. uh, who you saw testify on Capitol Hill. There was Mother Randall. Uh, Mother Fletcher's 107. Mother Randall's 106. And Uncle Red is 100 years old. And so you have to think, Joy, they are still, the land was destroyed. Yeah. They did not uh, compensate them for, for any of the destruction. How do we know the next Hilton wasn't there? That's you know, right. the next legacy of, of wealth wasn't there. And so the city is still profiting from their land and denying them, denying yeah. them a livelihood even now. And their descendants, the, the generations, this rippled through time, yeah. rippled through generations. Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, was, her life was bookended yeah. by white supremacy. Her uh, brother was murdered. So support justice for Greenwood yeah. uh, to support these descendants. But yes, it does make a difference that they're alive. The last word to you, Jelani, what will people get in this out of this book? You know, I think that you get a vantage point on the very things that we're looking at right now. You have an astounding array of really brilliant people uh, who are considering these questions and hopefully some insight into the the world that we're living in right now. Yeah, absolutely. And a brilliant essays by you, Jelani Cobb, because you are brilliant, uh, as well as Tiffany Cross, my brilliant friend. You guys are great. Tiffany Cross, Jelani Cobb, you're awesome. Uh, Up next, tonight's absolute worst is a repeat offender who's managed to conveniently whitewash the entire AIDS crisis. We'll be right back. it was possible for old Tuckums to reach a new low. But he sure managed to do just that in a discussion about how America treats people with COVID worse than it treated people with AIDS in the 80s. Sometimes there are medical crises, typhus, cholera, you know, AIDS, polio, but we don't moralize it. We just get through it and everyone keeps right. the so laws you're from San Francisco. Which was the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic in 81, 82, 83, and, you know, for 40 years. We self-consciously didn't do that. Thank you. And and I'm glad. I mean, I don't, you know, blaming people who are dying, it's like the ugliest thing you could do. Yeah, it sure would have been terrible if we blamed people for dying. Oh, right. That's exactly what way too many Americans did. So we thought we'd give Tuckums a little trip down memory lane, which included a ton of blame and an entire White House press corps laughing at the so-called gay plague. The lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. 
sound problem there. In fact, the right-wing Christian moral majority even put out an ad in 1983 advocating putting mom, dad, and the kitties in masks to protect them from, quote, homosexual diseases threatening American families. In 1986, 10-year-old Ryan White was kicked out of school for contracting AIDS. By 1987, 51% of Americans thought it was people's own fault for getting AIDS, with 43% thinking it was, quote, God's punishment for immoral sexual behavior. Basketball superstar Magic Johnson had to resign when he tested positive for HIV. And when he came back for the All-Star game a few months later, not every player was okay playing beside him on the court. And while society has definitely improved how we treat our fellow humans who are living with HIV, it's not like we've done such a good job that we're entirely forgotten that it was a problem in the first place. In 2013, televangelist Pat Robertson claimed people were purposefully spreading AIDS through handshakes with rings, decided, designed to cut the other person. You cannot make this stuff up. Rapper DaBaby just had to apologize for his AIDS-shaming comments at a stage show. And Congresswoman Lauren Boebert tweeted the false and bizarre statement that liberals legalized knowingly spreading HIV while complaining that those same liberals wanted vaccine mandates. I know, she ain't the smartest. But what's most galling about that Tuckum segment, is that there is no comparison at all between the way we used to treat AIDS patients and America simply asking people who might have COVID, an extremely infectious airborne disease, to stay home if they're sick or wear a tiny piece of cloth to cover their coughs and sneezes or to get a free vaccine. So Tucker Carlson, so for pretending that somehow we treated people with AIDS better than the way that we treat people who refuse to take COVID precautions, you are once again tonight's absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout. Be sure to check out the readout blog for Jahan's take on which voices have been silenced in the debate over the war in Afghanistan. If you're not reading the readout blog, you should not miss it. It's really great. Jahan does some fantastic writing and reporting, and it's all right there for you on the readout blog. Hope you all will check it out. Thank you all for tuning in. Really appreciate you being here tonight. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.